Good morning. Everybody doing good? Look, I'm going to step on all their notes. That's what they get. <laughs> good morning. It's so good to see you. We're in Numbers 22. If you want to turn that way. So, Father, in Jesus' name, we come before you. And we thank you for your word. We thank you for the breath of the spirit in the room this morning. We pray that you would minister to us, fill us afresh with the Holy Spirit. May every heart be satisfied in Jesus this morning. It's in your most beautiful name we pray. And all the saints said, amen, amen. We'll start in verse 36 this morning. We're going to work through chapter 23, verse 12. Well, Pastor Seth pointed me to a G.K. Chesterton quote. G.K. Chesterton was that thinker who C.S. Lewis was reading when he came to the Lord. And uh, the G.K. Chesterton quote I've thought about for a couple weeks. Chesterton said this. He said, tradition is only democracy extended through time. And then he said, you should never reject a good man's opinion, even if he's your father. And the idea is that... Um, when he says tradition is democracy extended through time, he has in mind um, teachers and thinkers. And uh, basically, in, in our culture, for instance, there are fads. We'll go through these seasons where there'll be like one teacher or one book. Do you guys remember uh, when Purpose Driven Life was like the thing, right? Like it was like that was it. And everyone read it and it was the most important thing on the earth. Um, where there's these fads, but time will tell whether or not the thing is actually that helpful. Does that make sense? So there are these there's seasons where these books or these teachings rise to the surface and everyone clings to it. And we all love it. But five years later, do we still talk about it all? Did we actually learn anything? Was it actually effective? And so he says that tradition is democracy in the sense that um, the generations, the things that rise to the surface throughout the generations, the generations have deemed helpful and worthy, uh, in particular thinking of, of Christian generations. I was reading and thinking about A.W. Pink this week, and A.W. Pink was this really introverted, not particularly social, like his social skills were a little wonky, um, pastor and thinker. Every pastor he had was really short. Um, he never stayed anywhere too long, and eventually he gives his life to um, to writing because he doesn't feel fit for the ministry. Uh, so he's a really interesting person. Um, but Martin Lloyd-Jones, who again is the greatest preacher of the last hundred years, famously told a young preacher, don't waste your time reading Barth or Bruner. You'll get nothing from them. Read Pink. Um, Karl Barth was the most prominent theologian of the last hundred years. Um, but Martin Lloyd-Jones basically said, he's not really that helpful. Um, don't read it at all. You should read Pink. So Pink had no um, following, had no big name. But Martin Lloyd-Jones said, uh, maybe you should read Pink. And so there's this, this idea, again, of some thinking, some teaching being good for the soul, being bred, being helpful, and others just being popular in a season. It feels attractive, but it actually doesn't bear long-lasting fruit. So all that to say, I was reading Pink this week, um, and, and in a book called The Attributes of God that's been really helpful over the years. And in particular, I was reading a chapter called The Beauty of God's Holiness, Beauty of God's holiness. Beauty and holiness are not two things that we often think about as being yoked together. When we think holiness, we think buns and long skirts, 
right? When we think holiness, we think um, totalitarian, no, no tobacco ever. When we think holiness, we think of all the extremes of what would be called the holiness movement. Now, I love the holiness movement. I'm actually a really big fan, but it obviously had errors in, in which oftentimes, you know, the women weren't allowed to wear the makeup. Um, yep, we'll just leave that one alone. Um, <laughs> but that's how we've imagined holiness. But the scripture, Pink was showing, that the Bible calls holiness beautiful. And um, the Bible uh, says in Second Chronicles 20, verse 21, Jehoshaphat appointed singers to sing, of the beauty of his holiness. Sometimes it's translated the splendor of his holiness, but the beauty of his holiness. And so A.W. Pink, he quotes another theologian, says this, Power is God's hand or arm. Omniscience his eye. Mercy his bowels or his heart. That was another way of saying heart. Eternity his duration. But holiness is his beauty. The angels obviously cry, Holy, holy, holy. Holiness is fully expressed in Christ Jesus, who is without spot or blemish. We see in the nature of Jesus this kind of kindness and mercy and compassion, this beautiful holiness. Now, we've said before that holiness is the idea of separation, that the Hebrew word really means to cut. It it, is the idea of a knife to separate. And so when we talk about God as being holy, we mean there's a great separation or a great cut, a great blade that has divided us and him. He's higher, more beautiful, different. Sometimes the word was literally used um, when you're talking about meat and there, there would be a the best cut, the cut above the rest. And so... Primarily, the idea of, of holiness is, is sacred, not common. By calling God holy, we are acknowledging that his attributes, his characteristics are totally beyond us, beautiful. But we'll remember this morning that God called Israel to be holy as he is holy. And so Leviticus gives us that command, be holy as I am holy. And Peter echoes that command and places it upon the church, that the church should be holy as he is holy. And we remember in Revelation that the bride of Christ is wrapped in a spotless gown. And so we're called saints or holy ones. And today when we read we're going to read of Balaam. Remember, we're in the story of Balaam. Balaam, he's going to be taken to a mountain so that he can see Israel for the first time. Now, what we know from history is there's some kind of um, pagan idea here, some kind of ritualistic idea that you have to be able to see the people you curse. And so when someone pronounces a curse upon a people or a person, they need to be able to see them. And so Balak's going to take Balaam to a top of a mountain so that he can look over Israel and get ready to curse her. And what Balaam... Um, recites what he's going to announce this morning in our text is that Israel, their devotion to God is beautiful. He's going to see for the first time, if you will, a monotheistic people. And so again, Balaam's the king of paganism. He knows the gods. He knows all the rituals and all the chants and all the sorceries. And so Balaam could tell you about Molech and Balaam could tell you about Baal, but Balaam um, doesn't really know anything about a monotheistic people, a people who are totally devoted and dedicated to one God. And what we're going to see in the text today is that Israel is totally devoted to one God, and then God is totally devoted to Israel. And there's this kind of covenantal 
beauty that we see between Israel and Yahweh. Israel belongs only to him. Israel's declaration will be that every other God is an idol. And so Israel will say of Melech, that Melech is an idol, that Melech should not be worshipped, that no one should bow before Melech, or Baal is, is nothing before Yahweh. And so Israel says, we've got one God, he's the king of heaven and the earth, and then God turns to Israel and says, you are my beloved, holy bride. So there's this strange union, it's totally unique to anything that Balaam's ever seen, and all Balaam can kind of say is, this is beautiful. So let's read the text today, and I'll, and I'll try to uncover for us, I think, what's the heart of what we will call Balaam's first oracle. So he's going to give us essentially three oracles plus one, okay? Three oracles about Israel, and then he gives a bonus because that's just the kind of guy he is, okay? He's going to give us an extra. We'll start in 22 verse 36, and then I'll read to you through 23 verse 12. When Balak heard that Balaam had come... He went out to meet him at the city of Moab on the border formed by Arnon at the extremity of the border. And Balak said to Balaam, did I not send to you to call you? Why didn't you come to me? Am I not able to honor you? Balaam said to Balak, behold, I have come to you. Have I now any power of my own to speak anything? The word that God puts in my mouth, that must I speak. Then Balaam went with Balak and they came to Kiriath Huzath. And Balak sacrificed oxen and sheep and sent for Balaam and for the princes who were with him. So they have this kind of welcoming party for Balaam. And in the morning, Balak took Balaam and brought him to Bamoth Baal. And from there he saw a fraction of the people. And Balaam said to Balak, build for me here seven altars, prepare for me seven bulls and seven rams. And Balak did as Balaam had said. And Balak and Balaam offered on each altar a bull and a ram. And Balaam said to Balak, stand beside your burnt offering and I will go. Perhaps the Lord will come to meet me and whatever he shows me, I will tell you. And he went to a bare height and God met Balaam. And Balaam said to him, I have arranged the seven altars and I have offered on each altar a bull and a ram. And the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth and said, return to Balak and thus you shall speak. And he returned to him and behold, he and all the princes of Moab were standing beside their burnt offerings and Balaam took up his discourse and said, so this is Balaam's first oracle. This is what Balaam said from Aram, Balak has brought me the king of Moab from the Eastern mountains. Come curse Jacob for me and come denounce Israel. How can I curse whom God has not cursed? How could I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? For from the top of the crags I see him, from the hills I behold him. Behold, a people dwelling alone, not counting itself among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob, or number the fourth part of Israel? Let me die the death of the upright, and let my end be like his. And Balak says to Balaam, What have you done to me? I took you to curse my enemies, and behold, you have done nothing but bless them. And he answered and said, must I not take care to speak what the Lord has put in my mouth? First, let me rehearse the whole narrative for you just for a moment to remind ourselves of the context that we just stepped into. Remember again, this period of Israel's life, they're camping in the plains of Moab. They're still under Moses' leadership and they've yet to cross the, the Jordan River into the promised land. Moses is getting ready to die. This is late in his life. Um, and Israel actually doesn't want to fight with, with Moab at all. Israel's preparing and planning to cross the Jordan River. And remember, Jericho will be their first fight. But, but the king of Moab, so they're, 
and they're camped at the plains of Moab, Israel, millions of people. And the king of Moab's name is Balak. And Balak sees Israel camped there, has heard that every enemy Israel comes against, she conquers, and Balak gets very nervous. So he rallies his neighbors, the Midianites, and he tells them, what we need to do is we need to put together our resources and hire Balaam, this great sorcerer, to come and pronounce a curse upon Israel, kind of a spell upon Israel so that she will be cursed. Remember the story tells us that they sent a, a, a bunch of princes or dignitaries, these kind of political men with money, and they came to Balaam, who was hundreds of miles away, and they said, Balaam, come curse Israel for us. And remember the first time Balaam speaks with Yahweh, with the God of Israel, God says, you are not to go with them, I have blessed them. The men of Balak go back and Balak sends him essentially with a blank check and says, we'll give you a, as much money as you want, Balaam. Just come and curse Israel. This time, the Lord says to Balaam, you can go. And then we slide into the narrative, remember, of Balaam and his donkey. Balaam, on his donkey, goes from Peor to Moab. And you remember, the angel of the Lord is standing three times with his sword drawn And Balaam doesn't see the angel of the Lord, but his donkey does. Remember again that Balaam's donkey has more spiritual insight than Balaam, the greatest sorcerer of the day. And what we got from this narrative, on the third time, the angel of the Lord opens the eyes of Balaam to see the angel of the Lord standing with a sword drawn, and Balaam gets very nervous. Nobody likes a holy angel with a sword at their throat, okay? That's not a good look. And so Balaam says to the angel of the Lord, I'll go back if you want me to go back. And the angel of the Lord says, continue, but say only what I tell you to say. So that's where we pick up. Now, Balaam, after this encounter with the Lord, he has this holy fear because God's, uh, the angel of the Lord has a sword drawn. And Balaam's going to keep saying to Balak, I'm only going to say what the Lord would have me say. In other words, your blank check is not worth my head. I'd rather have my head than the blank check. So we find... First thing in the morning, (coughs) that went down the wrong side, that's beautiful, huh? (coughs) First thing in the morning, Balaam prepares sacrifices. He's going to prepare seven bulls, (coughs) I'm going to die up here, (laughs) today is my day, (coughs) I must have sinned really hard this weekend, the Lord's striking me down. Um. I did. I just fished a lot. I fished for a solid probably seven hours this weekend and didn't catch a thing, which might also be a sign of the Lord's judgment. I have to pray about that. Not a fish. Um, the first thing in the morning, Balaam, he does what he knows to do. And so Block takes him to a high place of Baal. This is literally um, a place where Baal would be worshipped. Now, if you knew anything about Yahweh, you would know that God doesn't want anything to do with the high places of Baal. The prophets will continually say that God will tear down the high places, but they don't really know who they're dealing with. And so Balaam is brought to the high places of Baal so that he can see Israel. He can only see a fourth part of Israel from where he's standing, but he can see Israel and prepare to curse her. So he says to Balak, seven bulls, seven altars, seven rams, prepare burnt sacrifices. So they prepare the burnt sacrifices. Obviously, Balaam, he's playing with sevens here. There's a trinity of sevens, seven bulls, seven rams, seven altars. He's 
participating, he's practicing some kind of sorcery that he's known before. And so he, he kind of goes through these motions. And then he says to Balak, you stand by your sacrifices. Remember he says this, you stand by your sacrifices. And then the scripture says that Balaam went to a barren height. Now, there's a little bit of conversation about what barren, what a barren height means. It seems to mean a mountain, um, a barren one, imagine that. Um, but it, it, the, the language could also just mean a secluded place. It kind of really means he went and was alone. But the imagery feels a bit like Moses. Again, we're, we're finding throughout the scriptures, throughout this narrative, there's this contrast between Moses, the holy prophet, and Balaam, the wicked sorcerer. Um, and so Balaam's going to go to, I think, think of Moses on Sinai. Balaam's going to go to a barren height to meet with God. When Balaam has an encounter with the Lord, he comes back down to speak to Balak. And he gives his first oracle. Now he's going to have, again, three oracles plus one. There, there's, a, there's a cycle of three. Three times he's going to offer sacrifices. He's going to go meet with God. Then he's going to give an oracle. Then when all of this is said and done, again, he's going to give an extra. But remember what he says to, to Yahweh on the barren height. He says, I prepared for you the seven rams, the seven bulls on the seven altars. And God kind of just ignores him and says, this is what you're to speak. He goes to Balak and he gives this first oracle. Now, this is, we're calling it an oracle. It's a prophecy. It's a declaration in the spirit. And he says, from Aram, Balak has brought me the king of Moab from the eastern mountains. Come curse Jacob for me and come denounce Israel. How can I curse whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? From the top of the crags, I see him. From the hills, I behold him. Behold, a people dwelling alone, not counting itself among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob or the number of the fourth part of Israel? Let me die the death of the upright. Let my end be like his. Here, Balaam first is going to say, how can I curse whom God has not cursed? Now, that is a matter of fact statement. He is making a plain declaration. If God curses someone or God blesses someone, how could I curse them? He's saying, I, I have no power to overturn the, the blessing of Yahweh. But underneath that, the thrust of the text is not necessarily this matter-of-fact statement. The thrust of the text, when you dwell on it and begin to meditate on it, is that Balaam is saying, look at the splendor, the beauty, the majesty of God's people. How could I possibly curse this holy people. When he says, let me die the death of the upright. Let my end be like Israel's end. He's saying, when I look upon this people, I see a unique and peculiar beauty that I've never seen. How could I possibly curse this people that the king of heaven is continually pouring blessings upon? So under the text, when he says, how could I curse? He's really saying, what I have seen is so magnificent and so beautiful and so wonderful. It would be a shame. It would be a great wickedness to ever stand and curse this beautiful holy people whom God has blessed. And that is the driving thrust of the first oracle. How could I curse this? Israel's covenantal unique standing before their God, again, is nothing like Balaam has ever seen. Balaam's seen a lot of cultic practices. Balaam's been around a lot of cultic prostitutes. He's witnessed like a lot of paganism. But when he looks out over Israel, he's saying, this is 
different. So the question that flows from the text, the question that should arise in the heart of the reader is, what is it about Israel's relationship with Yahweh that is so attractive, so beautiful, and so wonderful to Balaam, the sorcerer who has seen everything religion has to offer? Again, Balaam's seen worship of all the idols, of all the gods. He has a doctorate in world religion. But when he comes to Israel, he says, Nah, I can't curse this. There's something here that's uniquely beautiful. Well, largely, so we ask the question, what does Balaam see? When largely the, the thing that, that Balaam's going to kind of articulate out of his heart by the power of the Spirit, this oracle, in one way, Balaam's speaking um, kind of as the prophets speak. He's speaking on behalf of the Lord, but it's also coming through his own person. And so we're, we're not only going to encounter what Balaam sees of Israel, but also what the Lord sees of Israel. And the first thing he says, the large emphasis is, they dwell alone. And they do not count themselves among the nations. He says, how can I curse whom God has not cursed? I went to the crags, to the tops of the hills, and I looked out among this people who dwell alone and do not count themselves among the nations. Dwell alone. Now Israel is physically distant from the nations. She's camped in the plains of Moab's. She is not mingling with the nations. Israel does not um, intermarry with the nations. There are um, very distinct cultural guardrails around the people of Israel so that they will not go after other gods. And so they dwell alone in their location, but but the, the heart of it is that they dwell alone in the place of their, their hearts. Israel has her own songs. You won't find her singing the songs of Baal. She has her own culture. They make their own food. They have their own rituals, their own rites. And primarily, Israel is not syncretistic. Everyone say syncretistic. Paganism at its core is syncretistic. Paganism, syncretism means that paganism grabs a little bit from whatever God you need in the hour. You need rain, you go to this God. You're having trouble with infertility, you go to this God. If you want to grab a little bit of this pagan feast and, and bring it in over here to worship this pagan God, it really doesn't matter. You worship however pleases you, worship whoever pleases you. There's a plethora of gods and a plethora of ways to worship. But Israel, from her core, screams no. From the core of Israel, she has this monotheistic devotion. Pagans are syncretistic, can worship whoever they want to worship. Israel says, every other god is an idol made with human hands, maybe empowered by demonic spirits, but they're all inferior garbage. They fall flat on their faces before the one supreme God of the universe, Yahweh, and we will not worship your gods, show any honor to your gods, we will not bow down to your gods, we won't sing your songs, we won't eat the meat from your temples, we won't participate in your prostitution or cultic practices, we will live alone, dedicated to a single God. He alone is supreme and sovereign over us. And so, um, Balaam says, they're secluded. They're devoted. 
Now, they're not just devoted to God in the hours of worship. Paganism is very much about doing the ritual, doing the rite, participating in the act during the hour of worship. Come to the temple, bring your sacrifice, leave the temple, live however you want to live, do whatever you want to do. It really doesn't matter as long as you participated in the ritual. But not, Yah- not Yahweh and not Israel. Israel is devoted to Yahweh from the, the rising and to the setting of the sun. When they wake up in the morning, their songs are, Bless the Lord, all my soul. And when they put their heads down at night, they say, The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. David says, I bless you in the morning and at lunchtime, noon, in the evening. Israel, from start to finish, her life belongs to Yahweh. Totally devoted. Not just in the hours of worship. They pray. They parent devoted. Their marriages are different. This separation from the nations is nothing like Balaam has ever seen. They're unified in their holiness. There is a corporate sanctification. So the first thing Balaam says is they're totally separate. They don't count themselves among the nations. They're totally united in devotion to one God. And then he turns and says, and who can count the dust of Israel? Now, that, that kind of echoes and refrains the promises of God to Abraham that, that if he could count the sand on the, the beaches, then that's how his descendants will be. So in other words, Balaam is saying, look how blessed Israel is. On one hand, he's saying, she belongs fully to God. Then he's saying, on the other hand, and God just keeps lavishing blessing after blessing and honor upon her. God blesses her. So, so they have this blessing in the, in the plethora of children. Then they have this blessing in military victory. So obviously, if they were being triumphed by their enemies, there wouldn't be millions and millions of them. Right? When a people are slaughtered, they're slaughtered. So not only are they like, incredibly blessed by the fruit of their womb, but God keeps defending them against every enemy. They're living out in the open. They have no walls. Why is Jericho such a problem? We've got seven foot thick walls protecting them. Israel's got tents, man. The bears just come right through those things. I saw it on YouTube. Israel's out in the open with enemies surrounding her, yet they just keep prospering. Then you could ask the question, when, when Balaam goes to the, the crags, the top of the mountain, and looks out over Israel, he sees for the first time the people devoted to Yahweh and to Yahweh alone. Does he hear their songs? I wonder, does he see the fire by night and the cloud by day? Is there a chance that he can see the tabernacle and the cloud of the Lord descending upon it? Does, what, what does he see with his eyes when he sees Israel? And so the heart of this text in, in, a, in is this. It's as if Balaam is seeing, if you will, a marriage. You know, when, when anytime someone stands up and they say, my wife and I have been married for 70 years, we all cheer and applaud. Why? Because it's unique and beautiful that two people can live devoted to one another for the entirety of their lives. 
right? This is one of the reasons as Christians we defend and celebrate marriage because marriage is an expression of God's devotion to his people and the people of God's devotion to their God. And so it's like Balaam seeing a marriage where the bride is totally devoted to her groom. The bride would be Israel. This is scriptural imagery where Israel says, I will not love another man. I won't go. There may be many pursuers of my heart. There may be many who will try to woo me, but I will belong only to the groom. I will belong only to him. I'll give all of my life to him. I'll spend my days loving and serving and blessing my groom. And then it's as if he turns and sees God responding to that devotion with the even more ferocious devotion. And so God's devotion is, I will defend you from all your enemies. I'll bless you when in the going out and the coming in. You'll be the head and not the tail. Israel will be my bride and no one will steal my blessing from her. So Balaam's called to curse Israel and it's as if God says, you will not touch my bride. It's like Balaam's, again, looking on this holy devotion and saying, what in the world? They belong to him and no one else. And he belongs to them and no one else. They serve, love, cherish him. And he blesses, defends, pours grace and mercy out upon them. And then all Balaam could say is, let me die the death of the righteous. In other words, again, Balaam with his doctorate in paganism and syncretism says, let me die with them. He says, what they have is so uniquely and wonderfully beautiful. This holiness, this sacredness. Again, the idea of holiness being separate. They're not among the nations. They're separate, devoted, totally to God. This holiness, let me die that death. Now, from there... Ask the question, what does this text intend to teach the church of Jesus some 4,000 years later? One, the text teaches us that consecration is beautiful. Holiness in the church of Christ is not just rigorous religious practice. Holiness is fundamentally and foundationally living a life that is fully devoted in intimate love to Jesus. We need to be in the world, but not of the world. We need to ask the question as the church, are we corporately devoted to Christ Jesus with holy love, intimate conviction? We don't, um, when we think about temptation to sin, right? The, the, the Bible teaches that, um, and we need to mortify the flesh or put to death the flesh that we as Christians have a new creation, but the flesh likes to kind of get up from the grave and we got to keep putting the thing to death. And so as Christians, we will be tempted with sin. Men and women alike in the room, there are going to be times where the enemy tries to woo you away into sin. And, and we don't, we don't reject drunkenness or adultery simply because there's some kind of rigorous standard that we're trying to live to be higher than the rest. We reject adultery because it's trying to woo us away from our lover. We reject drunkenness because drunkenness is the enemy's attempt to woo me away from the God of my redemption. And the church must view holiness this way. It's Again, it's not like we're trying to jump through hoops. We have a gospel of grace after all. 
It's not jump through the hula hoops and then you'll be saved. It's we're saved by the shed blood of the lamb. And then our, then our, our holiness is just thankful devotion. Our holy, our consecration. So the idea of consecration, go with me. This is what we're seeing in Israel. Israel is consecrated. They don't count themselves among the nations. They're totally separate. The idea of consecration is not just being consecrated away from the nations, but it's being consecrated towards the Lord. And so when we teach our kids about sin, when we talk in our Bible studies about sin, it's not just that we're saying, don't commit adultery, don't look at pornography because it's sin. Um, it is, and it's damaging and, and wicked, all of that. But we are saying, don't look at pornography because it's wicked, and you are consecrated to the Lord your God. Right? The, the, that kind of sin tries to lure your heart's affections away from Yahweh and after demonic powers. That's the presentation of the scripture. And so I want to live a holy life, not because I want to um, look like the kind of person who has this rigorous discipline. I think we've thought so much of holiness as being disciplined, and at times it is discipline, there's no doubt about that. But I don't want to live a holy life because I want you to view me as rigorous and disciplined. I want to live a holy life because every moment from the rising of the sun to the setting of the sun is devoted to the beauty of Jesus. I want to really, really love him well. I want to remember, I want to remember with thanksgiving in my heart, the shed blood of the lamb that bought me and purchased me. And, and again, when he purchased me, he actually purchased me, right? I belong to him. He's my lover my groom. And so when we think about consecration as a people, again, we're not thinking about bonnets and long skirts. Wear your blue jeans, man. It's all good in the hood, okay? Um, we're, we're thinking about, does my life really adore Jesus from start to finish? And we welcome conviction of the Spirit because conviction of the Spirit helps us to walk in a way that honors Him. So first, consecration is beautiful, Consecration is not just about separation from the world, from profanity and from wickedness. Consecration is a dedication, a devotion to the Lord. And so Paul says to Timothy, set yourself apart so that you might be useful to the master. Set yourself apart so that you will belong fully to the Lord. Two, as we grow in holiness, and so the church should be corporately growing in Christ's likeness. That's a very crucial question to ask of us. Are we corporately growing in our Christ likeness? As we grow in our saintliness, our dedication to the Lord, there is a promise of Scripture that we will experience greater power, greater blessing, a greater measure of anointing and favor on our lives. A church that is fully set apart to God with passion and conviction will be baptized in the fire and the power of the Spirit. And so Israel, in a way, they are seeing God's great blessing poured out upon them as they walk fully devoted to the Lord. Again, we obviously believe that no one makes it to heaven because of their um, their rigorous, disciplined life. We make it to heaven because of the blood of the Lamb that washes us and saves us. But there is a such thing as living more sensitive to God's Spirit. As we grow in holiness, we learn to discern His voice. And as we learn to discern His voice and we learn to walk in great intimacy with Him, we begin to experience His power in new and fresh ways. 
And so there is a temptation to go after the things of the world. And we need to be aware that when we abandon our saintliness to go after the profane, we are abandoning our unique, intimate anointing with the Spirit. That's what the Bible means by do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Paul's talking to the church there. Churches can grieve the Spirit through living lives of sin and by consequence will miss out on the blessing and the favor that the Spirit has for a particular church. And so, first, we need to grow in our consecration to God and we recognize that as we grow in our consecration to God, God pours out anointing and favor and power upon His church so that the Balaams of the world will look at the church and go, I'm jealous. Now, there we slide into a New Testament idea that we see in uh, Romans chapter 11. This is Paul. He says, Romans 11, 11. So I ask, he's speaking of Israel. Does Israel stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through Israel's trespass, through Israel's rejection of Christ, salvation has come to Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Paul says of the Gentile church, you should be so blessed of God, so in tune with the Spirit, that when Jews, Israelites, see you, they have a holy jealousy rise up in their hearts, and all they can say is, I've got to have what you have. And that's exactly what we're encountering with Balaam here. Balaam's looking out on Israel's devotion, single-mindedness, love for God, God's blessing, protection, care for Israel, and he says, I want to die with them. And you could ask the question, does our region look at our church and say, I want what they have? Or are we seen as stale? Are we seen as those who go through the motions? Are we seen as those who just promote discipline? Or does our region look at us and say, they really burn with something? By God, that's what I want, to burn with something. In conclusion, I'll I'll stop there. One, consecration is worship. We are to be consecrated towards the Lord, away from sin, but towards the Lord. It's our worship, it's our devotion, it's our intimate covenantal relationship with our groom. Two, consecration brings blessing and power, anointing and favor upon a church. Three, consecration makes the church uniquely attractive to the lost. That's what we see through this oracle today. Our consecration to God, our sanctification, our holiness is our worship. Two, it brings blessing. Three, the nation should look at our holiness and say, by God, that is beautiful, wonderful, attractive. That's what we see, again, through Balaam's oracle. I want to die the death of the righteous. We must be growing in holiness. We must be growing in our daily devotion to Jesus. We must turn from every other lover. Every time the enemy comes to entice us to look away from Jesus, we have to have courage and conviction rise up in our hearts and say, I belong to one. He's better, sweeter, higher, more lovely. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, we ask that this church, Lord, that these people would grow in consecration, Lord, that we would be a separate, holy, distinct people who lay our lives down as a great offering before you. May all of our lives be worshipped.
God, we, we pray today that, that the power of the Spirit would fall upon this church as we live devoted. We want to grow in sensitivity to your voice. We ask in Jesus' name that this not be a church where the Spirit is quenched. Three, Lord, we pray that the Balaams of this world would see the beautiful, intimate, covenantal relationship that your church has with Jesus and would rise up with holy jealousy. May the region, may our region see something distinct about these people. Real love, real hot, burning love for Jesus. And may we become so attractive to the nations. We want to love you with all we have. And we long to see this region bow her knee before Jesus in holy affection. It's in your beautiful name we pray. Let all the saints say amen. Amen. Why don't you stand to your feet and we'll get.